0: Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcasts about the war which Russia started against Ukraine. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center, two Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I am chief editor of ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Titano Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So today is three months since the war has started, since this full-scale invasion has started. On 24th of February, Russia started this war, this second Russian-Ukrainian war against Ukraine with missile strikes on Ukrainian cities. Three months have passed, we're trying to draw some conclusions. What is the first conclusion for you?
1: Um, I think that now what we observe now is a um, Russia strategic fail in the war. I, 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 say strategic. It doesn't mean that Russia has no successes on the Ukrainian ground. Ground, unfortunately, this is not true because during this month, Mariupol fell in a way because uh, the military Ukrainian military were evacuated from Azovstal, but um. I am talking about strategic fail because now, what it, we, when, when the time goes, we see that no objectives that Russia stated in the very beginning, and even later, they are it, it, it cannot achieve these uh, objectives. For example, in the beginning, the plan was quite clear. It was to capture Ukraine. I mean, to decapitate Ukraine, the capital, to 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 impose another government. And all other things. Now what we see that they try to realize a different plan, plan B maybe, on Donbass. And um, this is also a failure because each week this plan is becoming even less important and even less strategic. And in a way, we see that with sanctions, with all this international pressure, we'll discuss that later, but with all this isolation, isolation Russia is suffering from. For example, today uh, President Zelensky delivered his speech at Davos Forum, very important economic forum in Davos, uh, which is annual meeting, and he was invited there. He was the first person to speak. And Russia was excluded from this meeting at all. So, and in place of Russia, so-called Russia's house... Um, Ukrainians organize this museum of war crimes of Russia. This place, or mm, house of war crimes of Russia, presenting uh, evidence of uh, Russia war crimes. This is not nothing, in fact. So, so everybody, a lot of countries, a lot of people all around the world are talking about Russia as a criminal, and in a way, so this is a kind of a huge miscalculation from the from Putin because his strategic goal was to be to Russia become stronger but what we see now Russia is becoming weaker in a way so this is quite clear now and more even more I don't see any good uh, way for Russia to stop this war they have to continue now they have to continue on Donbass without any any uh, great results great victories but they have no way out out of this war. So what this is what I call a strategic fail. Strategic fail in this war, this is clear for everybody, even if we don't know exactly when the, the war will end and on which terms and what kind, Maybe maybe we'll lose some territories or not, we do hope that we will not. But it is clear that Russia is already losing this war because Russia is becoming even more isolated and weak country.
0: I agree totally and uh, we going we going farther. and the second conclusion can be that the battle for donbass is also not bringing too much success because well Russians initially they had some kind of a uh, cunningness in, in their in their announcement of the war if you remember on 24th of february the special operation was entitled the special operation uh, to liberate donbass uh, the questions was reasons why liberating Donbass if you are attacking Kyiv, if you are attacking Kharkiv, if you are attacking from the south. But they, I think that the, the they would they would be claiming that look we are decapitating Ukrainian capital, we are putting our government and then we we turn U- Ukraine in a, into a kind of a, a vassal state. Uh, Probably in, in, in the same way as they tried to do in Kazakhstan, by the way. Very, a very short operation. They come and they go, right? They didn't succeed in that, but the key goal they announced about Donbass is, is there. And uh, what's happening now? They're, they're advancing in Luhansk Oblast. They're not advancing in Donetsk Oblast. Uh, the, the, their key uh, success in Donetsk Oblast is, of course, Mariupol. Uh, they really advanced much in Luhansk Oblast. Uh, there is a, this battle uh, for these three cities, which is very important. Three c- cities, which were the the, the center of Ukraine-controlled Luhansk Oblast since uh, all these uh, eight years: the Lysychansk, Siverodonetsk, and Rubizhne. Out of these cities, Rubizhne is already under Russian control. So the but. Uh, it's it's totally destroyed. So Rubizhne right now is, is is like Mariupol, and but they cannot really take this uh, to other cities. And with regard to Donetsk Oblast, their successes are even more limited. So it appears that in three months they cannot really they cannot really achieve even that part of their task to. Go on the administrative borders of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Regions.
1: That's it. And uh, let's uh, mention also Kharkiv region. It was liberated recently during this third month of the war, and it complicates things for Russians in Donbass because they controlled uh, uh, Kharkiv, uh, not Kharkiv as a city, but the Kharkiv region, and they used it, for example, the city, the town of Izum to to attack uh, further on the south and to get some more control on Lugansk region but they didn't succeed here so even more they had to retreat their troops from almost uh, almost all the region of Kharkiv. There's still some troops in there but uh, we cannot speak today about li- total liberation of uh, kharkiv region but still if you compare to the situation one month ago what we see we see kharkiv liberated much less shellings today as uh, for example, if you compare it to two weeks ago, still some some shelling yesterday, uh, day before yesterday in Saltivka, but still uh, this is not uh, like what was happening, unfortunately, in Kharkiv during the first two months of occupation. We know so
0: the, the stories of people who are living in Saltivka, for example, the the residential quarter which was heavily shelled by the Russians. They are now coming back, so uh, they are now coming back to Kharkiv. Some of them, and. Uh, that, that it is a sign that, well, the, the, the living in the city becomes less dangerous. But of course, Kharkiv is 40 kilometers from Russian border, so even without entering Ukrainian territory, Russians will be able to shell the city
1: but at the same time in Donbass region in lugansk region situation is really dramatic even uh, dramatic for russians but also for ukrainians we all hoped that this uh, famous battle for Donbass will last for 2-3 weeks but what we see now is already the fifth week of this uh, attack and it's never ending story they shell with all kind of aviation missiles artillery then they try to capture several meters of territory, and then they send tanks. And normally, normally, if everything is all right, Ukrainians are able to to push them away, but it costs, in terms of human lives, quite a lot for Ukrainians as well. President Zelensky mentioned yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, about losing from 50 to 100 soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers per day in Donbass only. So that's why heavy... The weapons are highly needed, expected in Ukraine, because um, Russia is not counting its soldiers. So they are doing everything possible to progress in Lugansk. Uh, 90% of this region is already under their control. But let us be clear, before the 24th of February, they controlled over 70% already. 60% 60% of, of the region. So uh, I might be mistaken. Luhansk Oblast? Before yes. this invasion? No, yeah. no, no, much less. Much, much less. less. One One third, something like one that. One third, 30%. Yes. So let let's let's be clear. So it was already part was already occupied before the twenty fourth of February. It's difficult to calculate in in in. Um, but um, they had the most success there. But in Don in uh, Donetsk region, much less territory is occupied after twenty fourth of February, except of Mariupol. But Mariupol it comes from the south, so it's a different direction. of that And type. this
0: occupation in Luhansk Oblast, uh, it's. Primarily the northern part of Luhansk Oblast, which is bordering Russia, so it was easier to take it. And let's uh, let's move forward. I think, and um, let's talk about this international support. So, what what the what do the uh, three months of this invasion tell us about international Western support? I th- I think that
1: uh, our conclusion after three months of this invasion is that the West support that. Western support of, of Ukraine in this war goes far beyond sanctions, what we feared a lot in the beginning. Just let's recall what was happening in the, the first days of war. We were still discussing uh, what notes seem true. We were still discussing first sanctions like SWIFT or not SWIFT. We were discuss, discussing um, uh, diplomatic pressure, uh, economic pressure, some kind of isolation, but nobody Was speaking about weapons, and uh, I do remember we were asking for close the sky, and all these uh, in view of all this destruction coming from Russian missiles. Today we see that uh, there is a kind of a coalition, a real coalition. Uh, Western coalition against Russia, and it's not only in terms of sanctions, but it's also in terms of weapons. Because this famous meeting in Ramstein military base in uh, um, in Germany. So today we had already the second meeting, and more than 40 countries support Ukraine uh, with arms. So I mean, with with weapons, with helicopters, with um, What kind of other javelins? Not javelins, it was in the first stage with heavy artillery systems. This is extremely important. We are already discussing missiles and we are already discussing uh, fight jets. They are not still here, but this maybe will be in, in the next part. We are talking about patriots today, as of today. We are already talking about maybe that patriots will be delivered from the United States here. we could we, we dreamt about dreamed about patriots in the end of February, but now they uh, have all chances to uh, arrive into Ukrainian territory. So this solidarity it is really solid in comparison with what we had in the beginning. It's still not enough. It's still not not so efficient and quick because every day costs a lot for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian people because we lose our best soldiers. But uh, it is, you cannot compare. If somebody would tol- tell you in fe- back in February that Patriots will be arriving and that 40 something countries will be uh, united uh, in a conference. I mean, uh, defense ministers discussing what kind of weapons Ukraine needs. So it will be... Uh, something surrealistic for us in February but now it's but at the too.
0: same time uh, there there is this this advance of, of weapons is not as fast and uh, as probably Ukraine would need and not from uh, all the countries and uh, and 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 here is the problem because we understand that the more the war is delayed the more it is prolonged uh, the the better opportunities would Russia have to reallocate its forces to to kind of uh, accumulate its its forces, its strength. And this is I think this should be pronounced. The two things should be pronounced. First the, sh- the, wo- the word victory should be pronounced and it it has already been pronounced by some some states that Ukraine should win in this war not only not lose but win in this war. Despite the fact that we hear some voices, for example, in Germany, one of the recent articles by German uh, famous philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who would tell that uh, losing this war for you, if Ukraine loses this war, it is bad. But also, if the war is escalating, it is also bad. And therefore, Ukraine, we should find a, a situation when Ukraine does not lose this war, but also. Russia does not lose this war, so this is a kind of a typical win-win illusion, I would say, uh, in which is still in, in some in some circles, uh, some medios in the West. But uh, it is it is really important to stress first that Ukraine should win and Russia should lose, and uh, the second thing is that is is the matter of time. So Ukraine is Ukraine's Ukraine's strength is not indefinite. And uh, it needs ammunition, for example, not only artillery, but also ammunition for the artillery, as soon as possible. Uh, because otherwise we can face a situation when, when the war is delayed, when it is prolonged, when everything turns in, into a kind of a big Donbass. Uh, the situation that we had over the, the, the last eight years, when when both sides, the Russian and Ukrainian sides, will just fortify their the, the positions, and then we have much bigger territory under Russian control than before uh, 24th of February, and it will be much, much more difficult to liberate it uh, in the cities, but also not only in the cities. So we should understand that people who are saying, okay, let's wait, let's talk, let's see what happens, uh, let, let's open up the, the room for peace talks. These people, they are thinking that they're, they're, they're working for peace, but actually they're working for the war. They're serving the war. Because if the war is, the situation is stalled, if if we have a stalemate, then it is obvious that Russia will use this territory it, it conquered to attack again in a few years.
1: So let's pronounce it, it clearly that... Uh, uh, some countries are still afraid of Ukrainian victory, in a way. So, And some European countries, some big European countries. You've mentioned Germany, but uh, similar things could be t- told about France's position in this war. Because uh, we've seen before the war, Emmanuel Macron visiting Putin and talking to him um, many times. And after Butcher, he stopped calling Putin. But once, one month after Butcher... He restarted calling, trying to negotiate things to try to see what what Putin really wants. So this is... um, Ukraine's victory is not something to be afraid of. So we should argue and provide arguments. Why is it so? But um, I'm convinced that it's in interest of everybody on this continent to have a solid security system uh, and not allow any further escalation maybe this is just my hypothesis that maybe mm, this uh, support of ukraine is arriving so slowly just to weaken russia slowly russia slowly in a way that it not a lot of weapons will be n- needed to destroy their army and maybe not to make any kind of moves uh, which would pro- provoke Putin or provoke escalation, maybe this is the plan. But uh, for Ukrainians, um, even if it's it might be logical, but it's a it's, it's bloody situation for us because every day there is people losing their lives, both civilians and military, and a lot of destructions every day, and not only military objects, we've talked about that many times, but also civilian infrastructure, museums, um, culture centres and all these kind of things, schools, uh, hospitals, all that. Uh, we will need a lot of money to to rebuild all that. So, this is a plan. This plan is has its un- some defaults for 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 Ukraine. That's quite clear, and uh, we still have to convince uh, some of our partners. When we pronounce NATO or, or European Union, uh, by the way, the next summit will be taking place in June, so in one month. And this will be the decisive summit for Ukraine because um, our plan, membership plan could be discussed there. And we still have to convince some European leaders that Ukraine um, did everything possible to enter this uh, European family. Um, and we still have some remarks that may it will take time. it maybe will take take 10 years or 15 years. some, some remarks which don't encourage in a way Ukrainian people to fight for values we cherish like uh, liberty, democracy, and all these uh, important things.
0: So yeah, the, the key intrigue of the summit is whether Ukraine will be granted a candidate status or there will be some, you know, way out by the by the European re- leaders, in particular, primarily Paris and Berlin. Let's let's be serious. Let's be frank about that. Uh, that some some of the way, way out that candidate status would not be pronounced, and uh, and they will find some some other formula. Let's not forget that neither Macron nor Scholz have visited Ukraine after the twenty fourth of February. Contrary to many other leaders, contrary to British Prime Minister, contrary to uh, Polish President, Polish President uh, Duda was just here, I think yesterday, right? Yes. But Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, the First Lady United States, First Lady visited uh, Ukraine, uh, the, the Chief of the European Commission, Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen, also, the the chief of the European Council. So the European institutions were quite, uh, active. quite active, and not the these key uh, European countries. So we can expect some bad things probably from them. But let's let's be frank. I mean, even if the candidate status is given <clears throat> to Ukraine, the the process of entering the European Union is always very much bureaucratic. I mean, the Western Balkan countries, many of them are for 15 years having this candidate status and, and still are not members. Turkey, I think even 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 more, I think it had candidate status in early twi- in early 2000 or something like that. So, um I think European citizens should not be afraid that U- U- Ukraine will become tomorrow EU member state but uh, candidate status is important symbolically symbolically because and politically. and politically uh because obviously this will show to Russia that there is no no way no way back mm-hmm. so uh, no way back and in Ukraine will not go back to the Russian orbit. Of Let's interest. talk
1: about um, things we know about occupation, because for already three months, many uh, Ukrainian regions, not many, but still we do know things about Kherson and about some other territories which are uh, occupied. So what do we know about occupation, about its nature and how things So, So what's,
0: what's happening <coughs> right now in the territories which are occupied, Well, there are many different things. We know that the the disaster of Mariupol, everybody talks about it. But uh, while Ukrainians were liberating Kharkiv Oblast, unfortunately, we have reports about Russian atrocities and they're they're pronounced by Ukrainian ombudswoman, Lyudmila Denisova, and they're just horrible. Uh, If you read them, I mean, it is, it is very important that the international prosecution will identify whether these reports are true, because we are, we're, th- these are addresses from, from the people, from citizens to Ukrainian ombudsman, ombudswoman who, who is uh, protecting the human rights. But they're just absolutely impossible to read. It's, it's, it's stories about rape, it's stories about rape of the babies, The stories that one triplets of girls of nine nine year olds were were raped by a bunch of Russian soldiers, stories about the babies of several months which were raped by the candles, some of them I think the report that one year boy has died out of that etc. So again these are just just reports by by the citizens and they should be uh, carefully studied because we understand that. Everything should be documented. But this is Ukrainian official, Ukrainian ombudswoman who who uh, says about it. And, uh, well, this is an official source.
1: So th- we are talking about these war crimes, in fact, in war crimes in territories which were occupied and then liberated, but we still don't know uh, a lot. So we know for sure, but this is indirectly uh, from Kherson, um, from all these occupied uh, territories, um, so about in Kherson
0: Oblast, the situation is a little bit different. We don't hear so many reports about atrocities and, and war crimes, but we know that about five hundred people are in the basements, in the so called basements. So they are tortured. They tortured by the uh, by the electricity, electricity shocks, and uh, some of them are in Kherson or in Kherson Oblast. Some some of them are moved to Crimea, to Sevastopol where they are treated uh, as fsb you know knows how to treat them so quite probably we hope that these people will be alive we hope that they will be surviving as they will survive but quite probably we will hear the reports as we hear for example from journalists like Stanislav Asiev about Isolatia in, in Donetsk, the the real the the concentration camps but it's so still in
1: function Isolatia is still in function yes, and some yes, people were yes. Were sent there.
0: So, yeah. So the strategy, as far as w- as we understand it, or as far as Ukrainian government understands it, and we have this information from Tamila Tashova, who is representative of, of Ukrainian president for Crimea, but they are also dealing with Kherson Oblast. Kherson Oblast can be attached uh, attached to Crimea by the Russian decision. Uh, it seems that the key uh, aim is not to kill people, but to, to intimidate them to intimidate the most active people with pro-Ukrainian position and uh, also they're not letting people out so for, for several reasons. First, they want to hold the referendum probably about something, the so-called referendum. Second, they want to uh, keep the civilians as a living shield against possible Ukrainian counter-offensive and third They want to mobilize them into the Russian army. So this is one of the tragedies of this situation. When Russians occupy territories, uh, they engage the Ukrainian locals into the army against uh, the Ukrainian army.
1: And that's uh, we know, what we know. Also, for sure, is that after this mobilization process in Donetsk and Lugansk, there were some several um, several uh, manifestations, as we call them, of women uh, against the mobilization of their husbands. Because uh, according to the new documents released and, and they were available online, they mobilized people from 16 years old until 65. So everybody, and also women, starting surprisingly from thirty-five. I'm I'm not sure why under after thirty-five. Maybe because as a women, younger women, they are more busy with kids. We don't know exactly, but we've seen these official papers online. So they are trying to do everything possible to to transform in a way this war in a kind of civil war. Yeah, that's
0: very remarkable. Yes, So what
1: what they were claiming back in 2014, that this is a kind of a civil war. But it wasn't a civil war. But now when they mobilize people, and nobody wants, even by against, because if they take your, your husband or your son, and you are alone, and you are living on the occupied territory, and they just kill, and they send these people, these Ukrainians, uh, to the front without proper ammunition, without proper weapons. They are just using them for the first attack. So people, they enter first, the battlefield, so they're very often killed. And you have to be very intelligent to know how to escape and how to say that you don't want to fight and just to to, to be on the other side, to surrender, to go to the other side. It, it's extremely difficult, military operations. So they die really by dozens, by uh, hundreds, uh, and nobody cares. I mean, uh, Russian army doesn't care about its own soldiers, but even less it cares about Ukrainians who fight against Ukrainians.
0: Yes, and one of the strategy always Russians had this strategy to go to the territory, Ukrainian territory, to exterminate the locals and to bring in some people from Russia. This is how many territories in Donbass were created and why... Uh, people say oh they are not Ukrainian etc well because they were artificially cleaned from from the locals from Ukrainians the same we can say of course about Crimea and Crimean Tatars and this process is going on the demographic changes the artificial demographic changes let's talk about Mariupol so yeah. what we know what uh, we know Mariupol, about yeah.
1: Mariupol is still still the maybe the most dramatic uh, dramatic chapter of this war because now the city is under control of Kadyrov, Kadyrovtsi, and there are no more people in Azovstal. Uh, and uh, they organized a kind of a celebration of, of the 9th, 9th May, uh, Victory Day in Russia, in Mariupol. Uh, they are organizing, they organized already press tours, even with international media, to Mariupol. So several journalists were there. The so-called media. So-called. Yeah, but this was a kind of... uh, Some some agencies like uh, IFP, maybe some others, just used that opportunity to be there and to report, which is extremely difficult. Uh, What we hear from Mariupol is dramatic because they are trying to restore... They're starting to try to restore the communications, uh, electricity, water. Nothing functions at that very moment, and there's e- e- increasing epi- epidemiologic disaster there because people were buried everywhere in many, many. Uh, I don't know, close
0: to buildings, the courtyards, courtyards, and, yes.
1: Yeah and they were not buried as uh, as they had to be so not so profoundly in in the ground and there was still um, uh, some possibility a lot of possibility for them to poison the ground and if it enters water for example which is also destroyed so it could create a kind of uh, epidemiologic disaster in the city and a lot of. Thousand people can die.
0: out So we're of really that. coming back to the nineteenth century. We're going to know, Middle Ages. Uh, yeah, when uh, the cholera, for example, can develop because there are there are dead bodies which are poisoning the water. yeah Yeah. we are coming back to this and this is thanks to russian liberation
1: and we do know about uh, we also know about this filtration process because civilians who left Mariupol, some of them they are still in in this so-called filtration process and um Mm -hmm. i can't forget this heartbreaking story of a woman separated from her four years old uh, girl child alisa so the the, the woman was a, um, a doctor, medical, uh, to, with uh, Azov battalion, and she was not able to, to cross to Ukraine, and she just gave her daughter to, uh, to another woman, and she was able to, to bring her to her grandmother. But this woman, if I'm not mistaken, she's in isolation in isolation somewhere in Donetsk. And they even recorded a video with her when she was asking her family to let Alisa, her daughter, come and join her in Donetsk. And it is evident that this video was recorded under pressure. This grandmother reported that she was looking not directly into camera, but but in kind of on the left, on the right, as if somebody was present at that very time. So they're trying to... To, to create all this human drama, it, it, you can difficult, difficultly imagine such, a, such dramas which are happening to, to normal people, you know, and uh, it's happening to many uh, people and some of them are, are still in filtration process. Some people who survived that process say that this is just easy so they just check your documents and your body for, for science if you're military or not, but people who don't pass this, uh, this uh, filtration so-called, they are unable to tell the real story how it is happening. So it's an extremely dramatic story for thousands of people, uh, those who left Mariupol and those who are still in Mariupol because they live in poverty, they live out of this humanitarian aid of Russians and because they, uh, they work for food. At least what we know from the 9th of May of this Ukrainian journalist Victoria Rusynava, former colleague who was able to enter Mariupol, and she reported on the 9th of May, and she talked to local people, and they were saying that for for that very moment they are promising kind of salaries, but for that very moment there is just work for food. It's a kind of slavery. I don't know how to go, what the, what the proper name. For, for that, but uh, what is clear that Mariupol is no longer here, so there's a kind of a huge symmetry, a lot of destruction, a few people who can do nothing about against and Kadirov, Kadirovti. So it's a kind of uh, kind of um, prize, I don't know what how you call it in the war, when just Putin gave this uh, city of Mariupol to Kadirov like a gift, so now you can do everything you like there.
0: That's symbolic that Mariupol is like the second Grozny, right, and these Kadirovci are those Chechens who lost, I mean, lost the war, not those Chechens, but the, the kind of... Uh, not the re- the real Chechens who fought against the Russian army right but the collaborators uh, and uh, the the fate of Grozny now repeating as Mariupol and uh, these collaborators Chechen collaborators with the Russian army now controlling the city. Let's move forward and, and try to talk about some economical things uh, we talked already about sanctions and everything I think one of the conclusions that we can make that sanctions simple sanctions targeting you know some uh, some oligarchs some members of the family are not enough what is really needed what is really at stake is something uh, fundamental that makes up Russian budget and Russian, including military budget. We understand that this is oil and gas. There is nothing more than oil and gas. Russia is so much dependent on oil and gas exports. And the real question is whether there will be embargo on oil and gas, whether the European Union, for example, will impose embargo on oil and gas. And uh, I think this is also will be one of the key questions in the coming months, because we have seen (coughs) a uh, decision of the european commission to cut uh, gas supplies russian gas supplies to the eu by two thirds i think it, this makes 100 cubic meters of gas which is a huge amount of course but there is certain skepticism among european and ukrainian some ukrainian experts for example we we asked Mykhailo honchar who is a, a one of the well-known ukrainian energy experts, we published his analysis on our Twitter recently, uh, it will be very difficult to, to make a story short, well, very difficult for the EU to reach this goal, although it was announced by the European Commission. Uh, and for Germany, for example, which is very independent on that, th- there will be a need for very, uh, very significant steps, for example, to accept that more gas, much more gas should come from the other countries like LNG, liquef- liquefied natural gas, including from the United States. And here we can hear all these conspiracy theories that it is all in, in the America's interest to have this war, etc. And, uh, and this will be opposing to this decision to get more gas from, from the United States. Second, Germany will need to probably rethink its uh, phasing out of its nuclear plants because uh, gas is also doing a lot of work in electricity generation and Germany is phasing out nuclear, nuclear power plants. It is also so strange for us Ukrainians to see that, for example, France and other countries are increasing nuclear energy, Germany is decreasing nuclear energy, so no consequent uh, policy across the EU. But uh, but because of this decision, unilateral decision of Germany to phase out the nuclear power plants, it gets even in more slavery uh, with, with Russia. And the third factor is to decrease the uh, kind of this usual average temperature in, in the apartments, in houses. We know that Europeans are quite, uh, Western Europeans are quite, uh, how to say it, Pragmatic, they, they really like saving energy and this is very good. Sometimes Ukrainians are much less willing to save energy than the Western Europeans. But really, um, I mean, the question is whether citizens, ordinary citizens, of course, who who might have empathy and sympathy to Ukraine and to Ukrainian struggle, but whether they will be agreeing to, to have the temperature in the apartments like 2 degrees lower than they used to have which will of course cut the dependency on russian gas but uh, so the big question is there whether whether europe will be able to achieve these goals which are announced by the very european commission and
1: whether this solidarity we feel now will last for for months and for years just enough will last enough for Ukrainians to be able to, to win the war? This is a big question. We do hope that it this will be possible, but let's see. And everything becomes complicated when you um, start talking about sacrifices. You know, everybody is sympathetic with Ukraine. That's quite clear. Everybody understands that this is a just war for us. So
0: everybody, you mean the Western, Western
1: world? I mean the Western world. But when it comes to pragmatic interests things become much more complicated. But um I would say that we, we, we have to find solutions. So Ukraine never wanted to be kind of a part of the problem. We can be a part of the solution for, for many things. Even for for example, we are talking about exporting our electricity now. And a country which is in war at that very moment, we are still able and we, we are losing from this, uh, from this uh, gas story because uh, Ukraine was receiving money for gas transit for many years and it was important part of Ukrainian budget. Now with this, all these talks about to cut Russian gas we will definitely lose.
0: This. Yeah, it's about several billion dollars that three, Ukraine two, will. Three dollars Ukraine will lose if if there is no transit of yeah. Russian yeah. gas. But to we
1: Ukraine. are talking already about the the about exporting our electricity and all these dramatic changes uh, so we have no dependence on Russia uh, on Belarus Belarus neither. so and we are able already to export. So maybe We should think in terms of being a part of the solution, not be a part of a problem. And um, we are uh, sorry to hear um the word we are afraid of so this is maybe not the moment to be afraid of of some something because this is a kind of a, we, we do feel that this is a kind of a decisive historical moment not only for Ukraine it goes far beyond Ukraine it is about the the future of the continent so had to ra- to take right decisions and not to be afraid of um, that we have to to live alone our habits and all this our Paradigms we uh, used to to think in, so it 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 could be different, but it it's it not obligatory that it'll be a problem. So let's think and about solutions. the
0: last the last conclusion probably of these three months is that life comes back to the war-torn territories very quickly. Actually, very quickly. We see we travel a lot in in the villages around Kiev, uh, I, I, even in Bucha that you know. Of course, this word uh, life has come back, uh, I think rather quickly, despite all these tra- tragedies. when we uh, when we travel across villages, we see people who whose houses were hev- severely damaged. they, without taking any any money from the state. It, it is still a very long process. We don't know whether Ukrainians and when Ukrainians who suffered from this destruction, will be able to get some money from the state. As far as they see in the villages right now, they're just, uh, you know, making up, compiling the lists of people who suffered and houses who are, which are destroyed. So this will be a very long process. But despite all that, people on their cost, Ukrainian peasants are not that rich, but on their cost, uh, they try to rebuild what they can. Of course, if, if the house is totally destroyed and we, we see only a skeleton of the first floor, they, they will they will stay there for, for probably many years but uh, other other houses which are kind of a shelled a little bit with the with the uh, the bullet holes etc people really try to rebuild it and reconstruct it and life is going on
1: is, yeah it's, it's about houses but it's also about all the cleaning so, so We still see some tanks, several tanks in these villages, but most of these tanks, of these uh, burnt tanks, they are taken away. So uh, there's a lot of cleaning already done in villages. And sometimes you enter a village and you, for example, we remember um, these images from TV uh, one month or two months ago, maybe one month and a half ago, and we just don't recognize the scene because it's it's different. It's completely different because... uh, it, it takes um, so people, pe- people do everything possible to restore um, villages, to restore houses if they can to make it as before they was. So it's, it's like also about roads. It's
0: like spring, you know Spring has, is coming. Absolutely. It's now spring and we see all these trees are now covered with the flowers with, uh, with the leaves. Spring in Ukraine right now this particular moment is just fantastic it's the climate is perfect and you see such a beautiful sky you see the sun and 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 uh, ev- the villages are just you know sunk in this green uh, green reality and as if the, the, the peasants just uh, or People in the cities try to continue this trend and, and be like spring, you know, to revive, revive their life, and this is this is also remarkable. Of course, it's it doesn't mean that everything is fine. There are lots of destructions, especially in the cities, in the multi-store buildings, multi-floor buildings, but there is this drive to rebuild. So this was uh, our episode in which we try to <coughs> draw some conclusions from these three months of war. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. I was joined by Tetiano Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Follow us uh, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, uh, SoundCloud, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.